Tonight, I would like to add further context to the overview of the Satipatthana Sutta that I uh, took us through a few nights ago. And in addition to adding to the overview, I would like to have us explore the satisfactory and enjoyable aspects of the practice of the mindfulness practice that are contained in the seven factors of awakening. So we looked at the hindrances of the mind and saw all of the difficulties that can arise in the mind. Uh, tonight we'll be looking at all the, the very uh, positive, very uh, helpful qualities that can arise in the mind. Helpful to being able to choose non-suffering over suffering. It's always our goal, always our direction. The Buddha's teachings all are in that context. Everything is that. The pointing of the Four Noble Truths is just about that. And everything else is an explanation of the Four Noble Truths. So this ability to recognize the difference to discern the difference between suffering and non-suffering, and then to have the wherewithal, the capacity to choose non-suffering over suffering in our lives. Not easy to do. So in uh, going back to the overview in this way, it's, um, it's like, in uh, American jargon, it's like getting our ducks in a row, you know, so that we really understand what we're doing. Okay, then we do this to do this and so forth. This is, I don't know if that jargon exists in other countries or not, but it's quite popular here in this country. And just recently in the, in the New Yorker, there was a cartoon in which all of these ducks are aligned in a row and one duck is saying to the others, I fail to see why this is such an achievement. <laughs> Maybe we sometimes feel the same way, huh? <laughs> so, uh, in terms of a quick review of where we are in our practice, we started with uh, creating an anchor object, that is the breath, in order to collect the mind so that the mind's not running around everywhere, to collect it and unify it with one single experience. We do that to get the mind so, so that it can be mindful because if it's running around everywhere, if it's jumping here to there, it doesn't have, it doesn't have the time to be mindful, but also it doesn't have the inclination because there's a certain inclination that comes when the mind is just staying with one object, it, starts, it's, it just automatically starts to see it. But if it's bouncing here and there, it, the, the idea of mindfulness doesn't uh, become available to us. Sati, this word for mindfulness, has as part of its root the, the uh, idea of remembering. Remembering. And so we're remembering what? We're remembering that we intend to be present in this moment. And so if the mind's moving around all the time, it doesn't have time to remember. It's too distracted to remember. So choosing this one simple object of the breath, and it could have been hearing, it could have been a particular body sensations, it could have been body scanning, there's other ways of doing this, but collecting and unifying the mind so it can remember to be mindful, to be present. So once we have a certain degree of concentration, 
of the mind. And that certainly varied a lot for each of us in every sit. And it varies among people and it varies among people in various retreats. And it's not necessarily that it's always better with more retreats. It varies a lot. We then started to include more and more of the body awareness. And that is the first foundation of mindfulness in its larger sense is through the body awareness. The breath is part of body awareness, but it was also our collecting and unifying object. So it could have been any sense gate that we used for that, but we used breath in the body. One cannot say enough about the importance of being grounded in the body. I hope that each person here leaves this retreat, whether you're first time or 10th time, with uh, a little bit more appreciation for the importance of staying in the body. Ajahn Mun says it this way, in your investigation of the world, therefore in your investigation of everything, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it, which we did, earth, air, fire, and water. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. Timeless and delivered means that it's off the samsaric wheel of suffering. It's delivered from this endless cycle of suffering. So that's quite a, that's quite a, a statement of importance. And we did this, uh, we stayed in the body. We are staying in the body through the walking practice where we notice the sensations in the body. We're doing this in working with the elements and opening to all the sensations and all the sense gates affecting the body. So we have, we have really diligently practiced this. And therefore, each of you in your own way have practiced this. And then we introduced Vedna, this noticing of the pleasant and the unpleasant and the neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It comes right after the body because the body is the ideal place to see what's pleasant and unpleasant because that's our most clear signal is body sensation in terms of pleasant and unpleasant. Mind states are a little trickier. Is this pleasant or unpleasant? Sometimes it's a little hard to tell. But if your body's hurting, you know your body's hurting. Or at least you thought you did until you actually started looking at it. And then you saw, oh, well, if my mind is interpreting before I go directly to the experience of the body, I may think this is painful as many of you reported. But then when I really look at it in terms of is this pleasant or unpleasant, it's actually not that painful. Thus the importance of staying directly with the body. Uh, it, and from that we learn to uh, really see clearly the Vedna, but then we also learn how to distinguish being directly with something. Because it's equally hard, and in many ways harder, to be with the mind states directly. Because as soon as we have a memory that's triggering something in our mind, we go into our secondary responses, reactions to that memory or, or that thought about the future. And then we go into tertiary. We, we experience what's called 
papancha mind, this ex- this exploding association of, oh, well, we notice, you know, uh, that, that, that uh, woman's wearing a blouse like my mother used to wear. Oh, yeah, my mother, da-da-da. And then I remember this, and, da, 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 and off we're gone, you know. The sit-ins, the bell rings, where did it go? So this... This not being able to stay with the direct experience. Oh, look at the color of that blouse. I recognize the shape of that blouse or that shirt or that jacket or whatever it is or that look on a face or the way that person walks to stay directly with the experience, knowing the experience itself. So, so important. And then Vedna shows us how the mind is getting conditioned. Is it getting conditioned towards the hindrances or not, towards the hindrances or not. So uh, out of the pleasant or unpleasantness, we can see, oh, this is pleasant, and I'm wanting more of it. So now I've got this wanting mind. Oh, I don't, I don't like this, this is not pleasant. Now we see aversion mind arising, and so on and so forth. So very, very useful, this Vedna. And then today, we, uh, we also looked at, at emotions. So we were watching emotions today. Just to be clear about the practice today and going forward, in our instruction sit this morning, uh, Dory did a beautiful, just a very inspiring job of inviting the examining of emotions and really holding the space in a balanced way for that. We were not and are not saying that you're supposed to go out and look for emotions. You are now reaching the point in this retreat where you start with the breath, you start with establishing an anchor, a certain degree of concentration, a certain degree of collected and unified mind, and then you start to open to all the experiences. So the experience of the body, the various kinds of experiences of the body, the various experience of Vedna, the various experiences of the mind. We did emotions today, we'll be doing mind states, very soon, so that, that we are opening to all of these experiences, but we're not specifically going and looking for any of them. On the other hand, we are training ourselves to stay in the body, and we're training ourselves to uh, have a habitual noticing of Vedna, of pleasant and unpleasant, because it's so important, it's so tricky, it's so uh, can take control. So no matter what else we're doing, we're just always noticing the Vedna in that way. But we don't have to make it the purpose, oh, I'm going to notice the Vedna of everything. We just, it's sort of there in the background, this recognition of, oh, this is pleasant or unpleasant is occurring right now. This is um, a little bit of a subtle point in some ways, but I, I, uh, I have found it so useful for myself and, and people I've worked with, is that we just get in the habit of noticing the Vedna. We're not making any comment on it. It just registers. Just registers. Just registers. I'll say it one more time. It just registers. You notice it's pleasant or unpleasant. That's all. Just notice. So uh, we will, uh, we, uh, we have gone in terms of the, f- the first three of the foundations, body, Vedna, and then the mind states. The fourth foundation, the Dhammas, the, the, the way things are, uh, according to the Buddha, uh, 
And there we looked at the hindrances in that regard. And tonight we're looking at the factors of awakening and we'll look at an, another thing or two in terms of those, that part of the four foundations. So we have gotten our ducks in a row. <laughs> and you have, uh, you have and are going through this whole process in an orderly way. There's different ways to make it orderly, but we're making it orderly in a certain way. And you're going through that so far as you're choosing to participate. So how do we actually practice Vipassana? We establish one of three kinds of uh, attentions. One kind of attention is moment-to-moment attention. So we're present for this moment, and then the mind's moved on to something else, but we're present for that moment. And then the mind's moved again, and we're present for that. This, uh, this kind of moment-to-moment attention uh, for a long time was considered not sufficient for practicing Vipassana, but a number of teachers, most notably for uh, our, our IMS Spirit Rock tradition, Mahasi Sayadaw, really taught that moment-to-moment attention was enough to get free from the hindrances and to, uh, to experience that first stage of liberation and maybe more. That just moment-to-moment attention. A lot of people say, I can't get concentrated, so therefore I can't really practice Vipassana. Moment-to-moment, moment-to-moment. And everyone here is capable of moment-to-moment concentration. Moreover, in my view, every single person here is capable of the second level of concentration, which is called neighborhood or access concentration, where the mind gets still enough that there's some distance between you and the hindrances of mind. There's some distances. There's some distance. They're held at bay. They may be arising, but they're held at bay. And when we do the concentration retreat here, which we do every year, that's what we practice, is, is uh, learning how to Uh, gain this access or neighborhood concentration. In my experience, almost every person underestimates, there's a few exceptions to this, but almost everybody underestimates their ability to get a concentrated mind. And the reason you can know this is true is you can easily think of many situations in your daily activities where you get quite concentrated. So now why is it that you couldn't be concentrated to that same level? In, in, in practice, no, this doesn't make sense to me. So leave that for your reflection. The third way of paying attention is to become completely absorbed in an object. So our attention becomes completely absorbed in an object. And those are called the absorptions or the jhana states. And uh, that's the, in these jhana states, a lot of the fireworks, a lot of the special you know, experiences can happen. There are, there's certain uh, qualities of mind that are called jhana factors, absorption factors, that we cultivate when we're cultivating concentration that can uh, help uh, lead to this. And many of those jhana factors overlap with what we're doing in Vipassana. So you can have, you can have really strong concentration while doing Vipassana, but you're not completely absorbed. When you're completely absorbed, the hindrances are, are gone. There are no hindrances at all. That sounds great, but the trouble is, as soon as you come out of the absorption, there's the hindrances waiting for you. 
because you're not having any insight. You're not having insight is what frees us. This deeper understanding is what frees us from getting caught in the hindrances. And so they're, they're, that's why Vipassana is, is, the, is the most critical part of the practice in that way. I have used this word see directly so many times because that is easily overlooked. We can easily start to conceptualize our practice rather than directly know it or see it. So it's the direct experience. It's, there's nothing in between. It's, it's not a concept. When the body's hurting, when the knee's hurting, the knee is hurting, it's like this. It's unpleasant. It's, it's, it's got fire element. It's got twisting. It's got pushing. It's got pulsating. Uh, when, the, when the heart's feeling lonely, it's got this, it's got this movement in it. It's this searching, this restlessness. It's, got, it's direct. Now, this could be story of, oh, I'm lonely because of this, or my knees hurt because I was foolish in the way I sat. That's a story. That's an interpretation of experience. The story is the interpretation of experience. We need story. Story is useful. But in this particular practice, that's not what we're interested in. We honor story, but we're more interested in the phenomena of loneliness, of excitement, of understanding, of calm. We want to know what's actually being experienced right now. And that's where the insight comes from. That insight will then inform our story. Twice on three-month retreats, I have completely retold the story of my life to myself. Twice, because of certain insights that arose. And when from the, with the knowledge of that particular insight, the way I had held my life story just didn't hold true anymore. So I'd go take this long walk, and I'd just retell my story to myself. And each time I would be laughing, laughing with delight, because as I was retelling the story, I saw that the story was not so solid, that it was subjective story, and that it just can't be taken that literally. And so it became more and more free for me in that way. And I think the same would happen to you. Oftentimes, we are, we are uh, held back by wanting special experiences and so we, instead of sitting here and being willing to be with what is, we're kind of waiting or leaning somewhere or another to see if we can get some sort of special experience. And the delusion of that is uh, captured in this cartoon uh, in which there are two dolphins swimming in the ocean. And one says to the other, if I could do only one thing before I died, it would be to swim with a middle-aged couple from Connecticut. I like that a lot. <laughs> Mindfulness, this knowing, this kind of knowing, knowing what's being uh, conscious, what's, what's, what's arising in consciousness, knowing it, this mindfulness, mindful of... of uh, 
of a moment of consciousness. It's not just there's a moment of consciousness. You become conscious that you've got an itch and you scratch it or something. It's you're mindful of, oh, itches arising and now they're scratching. It's, there's, there's, there's an extra degree of awareness in this. It is not passive. One of the unfair raps that sometimes gets placed on Buddhism is that, oh, it's so passive. It's a very active knowing because we are seeing, we're seeing it clearly so that we have more choice. More choice what? To be able to respond to what's going on rather than react. If there's an itch because it's, it's unpleasant, we scratch. And if it's pleasant to scratch, we scratch more. And of course, there's uh, all sorts of things where people have hurt themselves with scratching too much where they've really damaged their skin and caused all sorts of things. Same with emotions, same with everything. We're moving from reactive mind states to responsive mind states through mindfulness. A responsive mind has some space around it. The mindfulness creates some space, creates discernment creates the space. And in that discernment, we are able to choose what would be wise. And that's the movement. And what's wise is what leads to non-suffering rather than suffering. So this difference between reactive and responsive mind, that's something that we, we all understand that. Just a reactive mind that, you know, someone bumps into us and we turn around because how dare they bump into us? And then we see this is a person who can't see or it's a mother struggling with two children. That, that initial reaction of being bumped into it, there, there's, no, there's no discernment in it, you see. And so, oh, being bumped into. We don't want to be bumped into again, so we turn around to see what's going on. We're not passive, but we're waiting. There's a pause in order to know, to see clearly. And then we respond. If someone's being aggressive towards us, we either stop it or we get out of the way. But that, that we're, it's an appropriate response, as the Zen people are very fond of saying. One more caution about this. These words dukkha, that is the word that we translate as suffering, but means unsatisfactoriness, uh, incompleteness, not lasting, all of these different implications of this word dukkha, which is why we mostly don't translate it. That word dukkha, what's talking about unsatisfactoriness, hindrances, talking about difficulties of mind, difficult mind states, then difficult emotions, you'll hear us say that. And then you'll hear us say, this is a purification practice. So we can uh, unconsciously start to think we're only supposed to notice the negative of our experience. This is so, so, so far from accurate. That is really mistaken perception. We're noticing everything, and it's great when things are good. And it's fine to notice when there's sukha, which is, sukha is the sweet, the pleasant, opposite the dukkha. It, you can be just as mindful with the sukha. We're not seeking out one versus the other at all. We're willing to be with what is. But if we only notice the negative, we're not really being present for our full range of experience, but we're also creating the idea that so much of our experience is negative. When, it, when we open to the positive of the experience, the pleasant, we say, no, it's much more balanced than we thought. Some of you reported that the other day uh, when we were noticing pleasant and unpleasant. And uh, everyone else heard it, so it's been witnessed in the hall. (laughs) 
even with hindrances. Part of the practice with hindrances is we're not just noticing when the hindrances are there. We're also noticing when the hindrances aren't there. So we're equally interested when the hindrances aren't there. So even then, it's not like we're just noticing hindrances. Oh, there's no restlessness right now. Now, maybe there's wanting, but we would still notice, oh, there's, a, there's an absence of restlessness around this wanting. Oh, there's restlessness, but I, I'm not doubting. It's restless, but it's not leading me to a doubting mind. You get that? This is, this is an important understanding right here. <laughs> We're noticing the absence of the hindrances because that gives, us, that gives us confidence, it gives us faith, it gives us momentum. If we only notice, this, notice the hindrances, we start to create a me and mine. We start to identify with it. And I understand how easy that is to do. I did not get this on my first retreat at all. I had no understanding of this. And nobody mentioned this in this way on my first retreat. So those of you who are in your first retreat, you're getting very early uh, uh, introduction to this idea. Likewise, when Dory was doing that beautiful uh, instructional guided sit this morning, a number of people, both in the hall and then in the interviews, uh, talked about, well, you know, I didn't actually work with any particular emotion because there wasn't any big, difficult emotion arising. There wasn't anything really bothering me. I was actually pretty happy. I felt pretty good. That was, uh, that was not fully hearing what she said. She very carefully said over and over again, noticing anything joyous, noticing things pleasant. She very much included all of the pleasant emotions. And it wasn't, she just wasn't naming all big emotions. She was saying, open to any emotions that, that your mind is drawn to. That's this negative bias that we have wired into our uh, system for survival's sake. So, Wake up to that. Do you only pay attention to negative emotions? And you take for granted, well, of course, this is the way it's supposed to be. I'm feeling good, and of course, that's how it should be. Not that way. So we're wanting to notice what's present now. As we start with the single object, an anchor object, to get the mind collected and unified, we've opened to other objects. Then we've opened to the dhammas. In the end, one way of practice is what's called choiceless awareness. So my mind's collected and unified in such a way, and I've got enough calm and so forth, that I can just be with one thing that arises after another. I only occasionally would have to go back to my uh, uh, anchor object because the mind is staying collected and unified. And when it doesn't have enough uh, collected and unification enough calm where it starts bouncing around too much for there to be true mindfulness, then we go back and collect. But otherwise, we can just go with. So that's one way of practicing. Another way of practicing is that we are deliberately staying with one object and we're seeing all the dhammas, all the is hindrances present or not, are the awakening factors present or not in that particular uh, experience, that particular uh, satipatthana. More to understand about that later. As we come into the seven factors of awakening, because they are pleasant, we can also then start to have wanting mind. Oh, I want this one. I want that one. Why don't I have more of that? And we can, we can start 
um, we can uh, fall into selfing and not notice it. Yet another cartoon. This is your entertainment night. <laughs> Forgot to bring the popcorn. This, uh, there's a king sitting very forlorn on his, his throne. And he's saying, I want to be feared as a tyrant, loved as a father, and revered as a god. But I also want them to think I'm funny. When we touch things that are affirming for us, there is um, there's a need for a certain measured response because we can get carried away because it's so thrilling. These these awakening factors just feel so wholesome that we can we can turn into wanting in regard to them. All the seven awakening factors bring joy and equanimity. They are awakening factors in that they lead us to being awake, to being able to have the choice of non-suffering over suffering, to uproot the very root causes, the very seeds of greed, hatred, and delusion that cause us to suffer. They're all, therefore, skillful means, and they come in little hints and guesses, we get little foretaste of them. And sometimes one or more of them are present quite strongly for a while, but that doesn't mean that they're going to stay or you're going to have access to them in the next retreat. So we treat them uh, humbly. You know, we don't, we don't make it a me and mine. The first of these is mindfulness itself. The first of the seven awakening factors. Mindfulness itself, this word sati. Mindfulness We've all been practicing, so we somewhat uh, know it. But I've, you know, I've been practicing for, in this tradition, 35 years, and I'm still understanding mindfulness. So um, uh, maybe you've gotten there a lot faster than me, but there's a lot to understand about such a simple thing as just being present in the moment. One thing tonight that I want to... Uh, just mentioned to you, is uh, having to do with mindfulness and attention. Because we, we, we become mindful by paying attention to something. And attention's got certain characteristics. There is an aiming. You have to aim. Uh, and uh, In some way, you have to make contact. There's some sort of like noticing something in some way. So there's a quality of noticing and, and then uh, connecting with that. And then for mindfulness, as I mentioned earlier, we have to sustain our attention on it for at least, you know, a beat or two till we recognize it. As the mind gets more steady, the recognition comes faster and faster so that we don't need as long. But the sustained attention is something that you are, you are getting by working with the breath over and over again on this retreat. You're learning how to sustain your attention on a relatively neutral object. And that's building up the muscle of, of mindfulness. So it can seem like you're not doing that well, but you're practicing over and over again with this sustaining attention. You're also practicing another aspect of mindfulness, which is fully receiving the experience. To be really present and fully receive it. As a couple of people have said, a couple of teachers have said, that's mostly a body experience. So every, every mind moment is made up of some, uh, some sense gate experience externally, 
and then an internal uh, visualization or, 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 or uh, speech and a body sensation in some way. And so you're at this fully receiving the experience. When we stay present, we can see that, oh, you know, uh, it's, my, it's my foot's just a little sore. But I can see, as I stay with this, I can see it's agitating my mind. It's really not that sore, but it's agitating my mind because of the repetition. This fully receiving, you fully receive that agitation because you are with this, oh, there's this little soreness as I'm walking down to the dining hall or up from the dining hall. And then there is this quality of curiosity, of availability to the experience. That curiosity, that being open to what's arising is uh, what leads you to say, I want to investigate this, or you don't investigate it. But there's an openness to knowing the experience as deeply as is appropriate. So mindfulness has a certain openness, a certain curiosity. And this is where the art of the practice comes in to some degree. We learn what to really get mindful of and really focus on and what to just know. We know this and we don't have to investigate. You could not possibly investigate every mind moment. So there's a dance to it as to what we investigate. And you get better and better by practice. And it, it's, it becomes natural. And then that we remember, this part of mindfulness is remembering that we're interested in the phenomena of it, not our story about it. We're not interested in who shot John, not interested in the soap opera of it. We're interested in seeing, oh, uh, anger is like this in this moment. Oh, uh, happiness is like this. Oh, joyful remembering is like this. We're interested in it as phenomena, not enmeshed in the soap opera storyline. And then the, the, the mindfulness because it's open and you're present, naturally there's an energetic movement to investigate. It's said that it comes uh, as a natural outflowing, this investigation. An investigation is the second awakening factor. That it's natural. As there you are, you're being mindful and you see this happening over and over again. Or you, you say, well, you know, um, restless minds like this kind of go, well, what exactly is restless mind like this in this moment? What, what is it I'm feeling? You start to penetrate your experience. You penetrate it. You're investigating it. You're seeing its nature. So, so this investigation has this quality of, of investigating the nature of whatever is happening. Again, not the storyline so much. You will inevitably think about the storyline. I'm just reinforcing this idea that to not get lost in the storyline. And then, but because that's not the practice. And then it also has this investigation of seeing whatever's arising in our mind in regard to the Buddha's teachings about the way things are. So we're seeing it as the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. This investigation. The mindfulness investigation together becomes the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. The Buddha seeing the Dhamma. As our attention builds on what we're experiencing, there's a natural law that energy follows attention. Uh, when I practiced Aikido till I blew out my knees, we really utilized this. We learned so carefully how to place attention because energy will follow attention. So uh, as we place our attention on something for investigation, mindfully investigating, it generates energy. And we get more and more energy involved in this. And as we get more and more energy, 
that overcomes the sloth and torpor. The mind gets bright, and we're able we're able to uh, 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 see even more clearly in our investigation because we've got more energy for it. We can sustain our mindfulness longer, and therefore the energy helps investigation in terms of seeing what's wholesome and unwholesome. So we can have a goal, we can have a desire to come up, and we, if, if we're mindful, it doesn't take us long to discern what's wholesome and unwholesome. But we have to be present enough to know, you know, this, this seems like it'd be very pleasant, but I know the after effect of this, this is not pleasant, this is not worth it. We have the discernment, the mindfulness helps us with that but also in relation to what's skillful and unskillful. So we may have a very wholesome goal, but we may be very unskillful in how we go about that. Very unskillful. I want to, I really want to get uh, 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 really concentrated. So I'm gonna sit for two hours and I'm gonna sit on the cushion because I believe I'll get more concentrated on the cushion. But you've got a knee that's really hurting you and you're sitting two hours with your legs folded, with your knee killing you, that is not skillful means. It's not skillful means. And we won't talk about in terms of men and women and, and partners and uh, the family units and all of the different kinds of way that we act unskillfully in trying to get what we think we want in terms of interaction with other human beings. So we learn to see what's wholesome and unwholesome as an end result, and we learn through the mindfulness and the investigation to see what skillful and unskillful means towards that end. When we start to see it uh, more clearly and this energy arises, we then, over time, start to develop a more sophisticated relationship to our energy. In daily life, we really need to manage our energy. Retreat teachers really need to manage their energy also, (laughs) but we all need to manage our energy. The same on retreat, we learn to manage our energy. The same in any given sit, on any given day of practice for any particular retreat. To give you a few examples, if you have too much concentration and no energy, then you're going to go into that hypnagogic state. You're just, you're just going to, you, there's, not enough, there's not enough energy to, uh, to uh, keep the mind bright, to keep the mind going. So therefore, in your practice, you go, you know, I'm so sleepy, this is not the time for me to try to get more concentrated. I need to do something like hearing sound or uh, what's called touch point meditation, which is just, you can ask in an interview about that, but to do some sort of practice, body scanning or something that keeps my mind moving because I don't have any energy. If I try to just focus on one object. So uh, that's, that's wisdom around energy. A second uh, a situation can arise. You can have too much concentration and you can have too much energy and with, with, with too much energy and too much concentration and nothing to balance it out on the other side, not enough calm and so forth, your mind can get so restless. Your concentration is, you're, you're not able to be mindful and so you get more and more uh, concentrated and jumping around. So you're really jumping around. Your mind's racing. 
And this can happen on retreat. So we learn through time to balance our energy and our concentration. You can also have a situation where there's too much energy, too much concentration, and no mindfulness at all. And then your mind can just go into all of these kind of wild thoughts. And if you have a memory from the past, because you've got all that concentration and no mindfulness, you, you relive it. It's like you go back into a trauma of something, or you go back into your sorrow, because there's not mindfulness, there's not, there's not seeing it clearly. And so we learn over time to adjust to say not now, not now to something. And we, we just learn. It just, it just sort of happens. It's not like there's a checklist or something like that. It's not, it's not like learning uh, the periodic table or something. It's, it's a felt sense. As we sustain attention... Uh, through our mindfulness and investigate something and the energy builds, the mind starts to really like that. And this factor of awakening called joy happens. So it's called P-T-P-I-T-I and, and Pali. But this joy arises. We start feeling very joyful. Again, in your daily activities, it might be around anything from doing something in a laboratory to cooking something when you're really focused on it, or if you're an artist drawing, you have felt the joy of, 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 of really of being energetically sticking with something. And so this, this, uh, this joy arises naturally. It, it arises naturally. And it, uh, it gets, uh, it gives more energy. So much so that we can kind of spin out on that basis. And so we're, we get so excited that it throws us out of our meditation, meditation experience. And this is where um, we learn about right effort. Right effort, there's, um, which is really uh, a, part of, a part of the investigation and the, the efforting, the energy. Um, that right effort is when the mind is on something in a wholesome, skillful way, we stay on it. This is part of the Eightfold Path, the t this teaching about right effort. Then when the mind's on something that's wholesome, we go, oh, this is all wholesome. I said, this seems to be skillful, so we just, we let the mind do its thing. Choiceless awareness. If we see the mind's going to something that we know is wholesome, or would be skillful to be doing, we foster that. We go, sure, mind, go ahead. However, if we see that the mind is playing that same old story for the 10,000th time about this broken heart we had 15 years ago, we go, no thanks. <laughs> we move the mind away from an unwholesome or unskillful experience. Likewise, if we see we're getting ready to have one more of those, oh, my mind's starting to complain. And we know that our particular mind pattern is once it starts complaining, it can go to town on complaining. It can really get in there and complain and complain and complain. No, thank you. No, thank you. We move the mind away from where it's headed. These are the four right efforts. And again, you're not supposed to remember all of those. You just, it's just hearing the idea, oh, I have choice. This thing of choice comes up along the way, not just at the end, but there's always choice. Choice between wholesome and unwholesome, skillful and unskillful, through being mindful. 
So this joy has arisen and we have not gotten lost in our euphoria around it. We've not gotten so excited that we've spun ourselves out and have to start all over again. May it be so. There slowly arises a feeling of calm. And the calm is the fifth of these awakening factors. And many of you have made references in terms of your experiences on this retreat as having various levels of experience, various tastes of calm, the mind being really calm. The calm has, has, comes through this whole process, but that whole process could be very fast. So it might, you might have been mindful of the breath. You might, have, you might have stayed with the breath in a way that had this investigation quality. The mind got energized so it got bright. And there's this kind of appreciation that suddenly the breath really felt good. You're, I like being with the breath. And that all happened really fast. And now your mind's just calm. It happened so fast you didn't even notice it, maybe. And the mind is just calm. It's just calm. Tranquility. And there's no restlessness, no worry. It's just calm. With whatever's going on, it's just a calm mind. It's as though the waters of the mind have gotten still and slow-moving. Just calm mind. As the mind is calm, if we stay with it, it becomes happier. The mind likes being calm. Again, not passive. This is not a passive feeling. This is not a numbness. This is not tuned outness. This is not disassociation. It's literally calm. It's calm. And it's a palpable, direct experience of knowing calm. And you've all known it. So don't think, oh, I wonder what that is. I wonder if I... you already know. Trust that you already know. And so as the mind becomes happier, happy, this happy, contented mind naturally falls into concentration. The happy mind, this, this contented mind, is what's termed the proximate cause of concentration. So the mind gets, gets very concentrated. There's a huge, 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 huge range of a concentrated mind. It can be slightly concentrated to deeply, deeply concentrated all the way into the absorptions. For Vipassana purposes, for practicing Vipassana through mindfulness, I am interested in, when I fill my mind, being able to know what's present. There's a sense that it's, it's so concentrated that it can really know. It, it's, the knowing is really strong. It registers pretty easily. Uh, it stays with it and registers it. And the mind, when it gets more concentrated for Vipassana purposes, becomes placeable. So I can place it on a wanting. I can place it on a gratitude. I can place it on almost any object and it will stay there because it's concentrated. When the mind's concentrated, it's, it's much more willing to be placed because it's, it's calm. It's not, it's not fighting. It's not overstimulated. But it's awake. It's got to be awake and calm. So it can be placeable. It can also be pliable. You can ask it to investigate some aspect 
of, of your experience. Like, well, what, what is this? What's, what's, what's here in terms of pleasant and unpleasant? Is this really pleasant or unpleasant? And it will, it will really like, it, it'll do it for you. You just, you just incline it slightly and it will do that. If you're doing the, if you're doing the, the uh, meta practice, you just, you just incline it towards meta and it just, it just jumps right in there and does the metta for you. It's really, it's very flexible in that way. And sometimes that's when we first get to know it, is in the metta, or ironically, even in the walking practice. Because we place our mind on noticing the hips, and, or the legs, or the feet, whatever you're noticing, and suddenly it's completely easeful for you to feel the foot lifting, and it feels pleasurable in all of this. Your mind was concentrated. Your mind was concentrated. So this placeable, this, this flexible, or, or uh, this, this uh, I said flexible, I meant to say pliable. It's pliable, you'll do what it's asked. And then it's flexible in that it can take the shape of the object that you're placing it on for its purposes of knowing it. It's so, uh, let's suppose that you're, you're seeing what a tangle your whole relationship with your mother has been. The mind when it's concentrated this way, it can literally like mirror that, that tangle. You might have an image of a tangled ball, like a tangled string ball, or you might have an image of these bouncing things or whatever it is. The mind can just fit right in. It will just go right there. And that really helps us see more clearly. So this, this, this is the value of concentration and uh, in addition to the fact that the hindrances when the mind is concentrated, the hindrances are at bay in Vipassana. And then as the mind is concentrated in, th- in this way, uh, w- and it's so calm and all this, when it's calm, there's a lack of distraction, so it's staying there concentrated, there naturally arises a feeling of equanimity. Equanimity is not the same as calm. Calm is calm. Equanimity is this balanced mind that can stay balanced even if some little ruffle happens. And it can, if it gets thrown off balance, if the mind's equanimous, it doesn't panic, it doesn't identify with how it's been thrown off balance. It remembers what it's doing and it just comes back to it. This, uh, the, the equanimous mind uh, in, its, in its mature form is one of the great, great pleasures of meditation. Better than any fireworks in meditation better than any special thing. You will someday see this for yourself if you haven't already. And so the, this sequence uh, 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 just flows like water downhill when it's going well. Well-established mindfulness uh, with, as, it's, as a basis leads to investigation of our subjective experience and that brings a, 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 the energy that's following the attention of that investigation, that sustained investigation with, with energy. The object becomes more and more clear and the mind becomes more clear. And as the mind becomes more clear, no matter what the object is, the mind gets more joyous. As the mind gets more joyous, it, it, if, if it doesn't get lost in that joy, over time it settles into this calm because it's... it's, uh, it's uh, it naturally moves from joy to calm if we don't grab. And then that this calm creates this contented mind and this contented mind leads to the concentration and bang, all seven factors are at play. Oftentimes, 
it's not so simple that way. We, have, we can have quite a bit of one of these factors somehow that we're accessing and not another and the, what we're lacking pulls us off and all this. We don't try to figure it out like a chemical formula. We just notice which of the factors are present and we learn how to cultivate which factor that's hard for us. Like for you, joy might be easy, but calm is hard. Or that you're, you have a lot of energy, but you haven't really trained investigation very much yet. So you just, oh, I want to understand more about investigation. You, just, you start to have your personal relationship with each of these factors, not in one retreat. This is the big picture here. One way we can understand the, the whole Satipatthana teaching is that we are removing the hindrances and establishing the awakening factors so that we can reach this point of equanimity, which then allows us to know the Four Noble Truths, which you will hear about later in the retreat. I wanted to uh, end with um, uh, uh, two things. I want to read you two things. Um, the awakening factors, if we don't get greedy, they're really fun. They, they're, it's the kind of fun that we had as a child. Uh, the kind of, uh, although our innocence is different in an experienced adult, there's still an innocence there that is, that is, that is a mature version of the innocence of the child. That's an entire Dharma talk, so can't go on with that tonight. But I, I say that because I'm, I'm wanting to read you from Rilke. And it's called, As Once the Winged Energy of Delight. As once the winged energy of delight carried you over childhood's dark abysses, that delight of the child, that innocence delight of the child, got each of us through, maybe with a lot of sorrow, maybe some real trauma. But it got us all through or we would not be here. As once the winged energy of delight carried you over childhood's darkest abysses, now beyond your own life, build the great arch of unimagined bridges. Open to this possibility. I can know. I can know my experience. I can relate to my experience in ways I don't yet know. This is a possibility. I'm building bridges to this. Wonders happen Wonders happen if we can succeed in passing through the harshest danger, but only in a bright and purely granted achievement can we realize the wonder. It's that moment of being present, so modest, present with the breath, present with an aching knee, present with a, 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 a sweet moment in the metta. To work with things in the indescribable relationship is not too hard for us. The pattern grows more intricate and subtle, and being swept alone is not enough. Take your practice powers and stretch them out until they span the chasm between two, contradiction, two contradictions, for the God wants to know himself in you. It is not our smallness that most makes us afraid. It's our large capacity that makes us most afraid. This is not an original line with me, an original thought with me, but we all know this. 
We are afraid of our largeness. We're afraid to open to the possibility, afraid that we won't be able to uh, achieve it if we open to it. We're afraid that it won't be good enough. But if we say, well, I can't do it, it sort of gets all of that away from us. So we d- and we've learned long ago, society has conditioned us to not really open, to not feel as though we're worthy of opening to our possibility. So to open to our possibilities as we sit here, letting each of these seven factors, the investigation, the mindfulness, the energy, the joy, the calm, the concentration, the equanimity, as they come and go in flashing moments, be available to them. Be available to your heart and your mind being in its largest state, just as you are, not a new improved version of you, but just as you are. One way that we can sustain ourselves in being open this way is saying that I choose to be present in this very moment. No matter what this moment is, I choose to be present in this moment. Um, This was written by um, an abbot at a Zen monastery. And it's called In This Passing Moment. In this passing moment, karma ripens and all things come to be. This moment is happening because of conditions. In this passing moment, karma ripens and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. This life is as real as a dream. The one who knows it cannot be found. And truth is not a thing. Therefore, I vow to choose this Dharma entrance gate. May all Buddhas and wise ones help me live this vow. Choosing the now, here, now, here. Let's close our eyes for a moment. Consider a window. It is just a hole in the wall. But because of it, the whole room is filled with light. Thus, when the mind is open and free of its own thoughts, life unfolds effortlessly and the whole world is filled with light.
Thank you for your attention. Again, to encourage the walking, even if you're going then to sleep, to give yourself a little time to walk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.